Matthew 26, 57 to 75. <clears throat> then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had already gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this is the man who was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The word of the Lord. Well, Nation Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue through the Gospel of, of Matthew and uh, find ourselves speeding to the end of, of the Gospel. So before we, we turn to this text, let us turn before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for, for who you are and all that you've given to us. Thank you for your word, Lord. Um, thank you for the truths that it teaches us. Thank you for the Gospel that it proclaims to us. I do pray that the words that follow would be faithful to your text, and Lord, that you would apply these beautiful truths to our heads, to our hands, to our hearts, as your people, the people of God, the people in Christ. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, and the power and the efficacy of your spirit. Amen. So at this point in the gospel, we find that, that Christ... If you remember last week, Christ was seized by night while he was 
with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And from there, he is immediately placed on trial before the religious leaders and before the chief priests. And in fact, this will be the very last night before Christ's death upon the cross. Things are speeding up. Things are picking up very quickly. And in light of all this, and in light of what we read in this passage, we might think that this text is all about the verdict that the religious leaders place upon Christ. However, as we will come to see, this text is really about the verdict that Christ places upon us. And so with with that in mind, I want to look at this passage under three headings. The judgment of the leaders, the judgment from God, and the judgment upon God us. So let's look at each of those in turn, and let's start with the judgment of the leaders. So as we read this trial scene, what is it that we learn? Well, we learn that we only have three choices if we want to condemn and reject Christ, as does this religious court, as as do the religious leaders. We can, one, We can make up things against Christ. We can bear false witness. We can lie. Two, we can misrepresent Christ. Or three, we can reject the actual claims that Christ is making. And we'll see that the religious leaders do all three, so let's look at each of those in turn. First, Matthew tells us quite explicitly that the chief priests are actually seeking out lies against Christ. We read, The chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. The chief priests are uh, intentionally seeking lies against Christ in order to condemn him. Even more, the whole thing is a rushed trial in the middle of the night. They're not worried about justice. They're only worried about getting the results that they want. And so they're actually seeking to engage false witness, rumors, lies, unsubstantiated opinions. However, if you think about the life of Jesus in in, in complete contradiction to what these people are trying to prove, Jesus has actually worked much, much good in the lives of that he's met. They're trying to put him forward as a menace to his society, but actually we've seen again and again and again that he has been a healer, a balm to his society. As Jesus describes his ministry uh, to John the Baptist in, John, uh, in Matthew 11, Jesus writes, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And yet, despite the love and service and healing that Jesus has again and again lavished upon people, he is here painted as a kind of public enemy. And there's nothing unique here. We do this too. Just like the religious leaders, we seek in our own way to reject Jesus by way of false witness. We too seek to discredit Christ as an enemy to the common good. For instance, in our modern moment, we're often told that Christianity is is hurtful and harmful to society. We're, We're told that we would do better without it. We're told that everyone, and especially our children, 
we would do well to throw off its chains. However, this too seems a kind of bearing of false witness. It, it's not looking at the actual sociological data. And here I'm, I'm pulling from the work of, of Christian apologist Rebecca McLaughlin. And she cites, for instance, the work of, of Harvard ep epidemiologist Tyler Vanderweel. He finds that children and adolescents who grow up in a religious home, they're actually better guarded against depression and drugs and sexual behavior. Points out that children and adolescents who participate regularly in religious services, they actually prove to be 12% less likely to experience high depressive symptoms and 33% less likely to partake of legal drugs. They were also shown to have greater levels of happiness, a greater sense of purpose, and a greater bent toward volunteering and forgiving. Of course, this doesn't prove that Christianity is true, but this is exactly what we would expect if it were true. And to be sure, this, this data, it speaks of religious practice generally. However, this data does undo much of our own false witnesses that we often hear lobbed against Christ. It's absolutely not true that the loss of religious observance is good for us. In fact, sociologically speaking, it's bad for us. It does not make us more enlightened, but rather less happy, more purposeless, more susceptible to anxiety and depression, and more likely to engage in risky behavior. And if you are a Christian, please take note of this. One of the best things you can do if you are a Christian parent is simply to get your children regularly involved in the life of the church. As parents, we're often overwhelmed about how to raise our kids. We hear so many different conflicting opinions, and we can feel very stressed out because of that. But here is one simple directive with clear sociological support. Get your kids regularly involved in the life of the church. Christ was good for his society, and so, too, is the collective worship of Christ as the church, both for adults and children, so, too, is it good for our society. However, the religious leaders, they not only bear false witness against Christ, they also misrepresent him. That's what we see next. They don't actually take the time to understand the words of Christ. We read, At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And then the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Jesus did, in fact, say these very words, but the temple that he was speaking about was actually the temple of his body. He was telling them that he would be killed, and in three days he would be raised again. But the religious leaders, they're not really asking what it is that he means. They're only trying to trap him. And Jesus is silent. He's not going to waste his breath. The religious leaders, they're not seeking to understand this mysterious statement, which, yes, begs for more teaching, which begs for more clarification. Instead, they simply take it as a threat against the temple building. And again, in our modern moment, we know much about refusing to ask questions and, and, and simply making assumptions about Christ and about Christianity. For instance, 
Very often in our culture, Christ and Christianity simply gets reduced and, and misrepresented uh, to what uh, sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist call moralistic therapeutic deism. And they write this about the, the, this assumed faith. They write, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. But here's the thing. If Jesus is saying that, then yes, our society writ large is more than welcome to roll their eyes at Jesus. If he's saying that, then yes, there's nothing particularly distinctive about Christianity. If Jesus is saying that, then Christianity and certainly Christ really have nothing to offer. But here's the thing. Just as Jesus is not speaking about the temple building, Jesus isn't teaching any of this. And so if you are going to wrestle with Jesus, be you the religious leaders or us in this room, you can't misrepresent him or his words or his meaning. And eventually, the religious leaders are forced to confront themselves with what Jesus actually says and what Jesus actually means. Frustrated with Jesus' silence, the high priest eventually tells him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. What is the high priest doing here? Well, he's, he's fishing for, for a kind of incriminating statement that can be used as evidence against Jesus. And Jesus definitely gives him enough material here. Jesus responds, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds. In response, the high priest tears his robes and declares Jesus to be a blasphemer. And this, the court decides, is worthy of death. And to say that Christ has uttered blasphemy here by saying this is to say that Christ has said of himself what can only be said of God. The religious leaders here understand that Christ is claiming to be God. And either this is true and Christ is worthy of our worship as God, or it is false and Christ is simply a blasphemer. There's no middle ground here. I used this quote a few weeks ago, but it's, it's worth engaging again. It's from C.S. Lewis, and, and in it, Lewis forces us to make the choice we need to make. He confronts us with the alternatives that we can't escape. Lewis writes, you must make your choice. You can shut Jesus up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And here we find that the religious leaders have decided, and as Lewis suggests, the passage shows that they have, in fact, spit on him, and they will kill him. Here, finally, 
The religious leaders are not lying about him and seeking false witness. Here, finally, they are not misrepresenting his words, especially his words about the temple. Here, finally, they have the proof that he is claiming to be God. And this is either blasphemy or it is good, sound theology. As Lewis warns, Christ is either a liar or the Lord. And here the chief priests have decided against Jesus and they have condemned him to death. And that brings us to our second point, the judgment from God. What is really going on here? What is Christ communicating here in this trial scene? Again, Jesus declares, From now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so we see that while Jesus is being judged by this court, we find here that Jesus is the ultimate judge. He is the one who one day will come to judge the whole world, coming on the clouds of heaven. We find the ultimate judge here being judged. And so what is happening Yes, Christ receives the sentence of death, but who does he actually receive this sentence from? It's not ultimately coming from the religious court, but from Christ himself. Christ is God become human, and Christ has ordained all of these things before the very foundation of the world. In fact, multiple times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has already told his disciples that these things will happen. He will die and be raised again. But why would this be? Why would God himself take upon himself the judgment of death, even death upon the cross? That's, that's what the sentence will be. Well, God did this because of who God is. And this is very, very good news for us. Because here's the thing. Only if this Jesus, this Jesus who is on trial, this Jesus who is condemned, only if this Jesus is God, only then can God be both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. So think about it like this. If he's not God, if this sentence upon Christ does not ultimately come from Christ himself, you either have a God of perfect justice or you have a God of perfect mercy, but you can't have a God of both. Let me begin by asking you a question as we, as we think about this. What is justice? What is your ethic of justice? You know, think about how you might explain that to someone else. And whatever your answer might be, please consider the Bible's ethic of justice. Consider what God demands from each and every human being. He commands us to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as our very self. We're called to love God wholly and fully and completely all the time. We're called to love every other human being in the same way we love ourselves. And this would mean meeting the needs of others with the same love and commitment that we meet our own needs. This would mean being just as sad and sorrowful for the pains and struggles and difficulties of others, just as we are for our own. 
And this may be the hardest one of all. This means celebrating and rejoicing in the good gifts of others just as much as our own. This might mean rejoicing with your friend when your friend has got some special honor or position, some privilege, something like that. And rejoicing with them, even though you yourself were seeking that same thing. And rejoicing just as happily with them if you had been the one who had received it instead. This is the perfect ethic that God calls us to. And you might push back and you say, well, well, isn't this a ridiculous view of things? Isn't there a place for just being good enough? And I definitely understand that question. And of course, it's my first impulse too. But if we ask that, we have to admit that we're rejecting a perfect notion of justice and goodness of community. If we can speak of good enough, then we don't need to be completely just. The Bible's view of justice is a beautiful thing. Loving in this way just is the full picture of human flourishing that we are called to, and that one day God will make a full reality in each of our lives. But at present, it's also terrifying, because we know how far we fall from this. And if we have a God of perfect justice, then all of us, all of us fall short, all of us are condemned, and this is bad news. But on the other side, if we have a God of perfect mercy, a God who forgives all wrongs, all evils, without any judgment or punishment, without any calling to account, then we can't have a God of perfect justice. We actually end up having a God that is unjust. If mercy forgives injustice, then just judgment upon injustice isn't being carried out, and that is unjust. But if judgment is carried out on all injustice, then there is no place for mercy. So we, we, we see the problem here. Either we have an unmerciful God of perfect justice who judges, or we have an unjust God of perfect mercy who forgives. And we can't have both unless Jesus Christ, this one on trial, this one being condemned, actually is God. Only if he is truly God can we find this union of justice and mercy. Christ is God, the Son, become human to live the perfect human life of loving God and neighbor in our place, on our behalf. He's the one who fulfills this perfect ethic. Jesus alone is the one who need not fear a God of perfect justice. He's the one who alone doesn't need a God of perfect mercy. But again, Christ is God. And he is a God of both mercy and justice. And in his mercy, Christ gives us his standing, the status of his own perfectly righteous life. There is no more merciful act than this. But what about God's justice? What about all the ways we have not loved God and neighbor and the judgment that that deserves? Well, this is exactly what this trial is about. Christ here is being sentenced to death. 
death upon the cross. And on the cross, Christ will bear the judgment that we deserve for all of the ways that we have violated this perfect and beautiful, breathtaking ethic of justice that God calls us to. In God's perfect mercy, Christ gives us his righteousness. In God's perfect justice, Christ bears our judgment. And only if this Jesus is God can we hold together both justice and mercy. Otherwise, friends, we have no hope. A God of only perfect justice leaves us with no hope because we will most certainly be condemned. Likewise, a God of perfect mercy alone leaves us with no hope because evil will never truly be called to account. All that is wrong will never really be set right. Either way, what we have here is bad news and not the good news of the gospel. But in Christ, if Christ is God, there alone is true and certain hope for unjust sinners like us. Sinners who long for the restoration of all things, for full loving communion with God and neighbor, for the life eternal of the resurrection. And so the religious leaders, they're trying to stop the mission of Christ here, but they're actually playing right into it. And the amazing and ironic sovereignty of God, these priests are still performing their priestly duty. They are still offering a sacrifice on behalf of the people. The very logic of sacrifice, of a substitute taking the punishment on our behalf, this just is the logic of mercy and justice united. These sacrifices covered the sins of the people so that they could come to God as a forgiven people. And here, unknown to them, the priests are actually offering the greatest of all sacrifices. They will slaughter the true and better lamb. They will sacrifice the lamb to which each and every Old Testament sacrifice ultimately pointed to Christ Jesus himself. The chief priests will sacrifice this perfect lamb upon the altar of the cross. But they are not the judges of Christ. They are only the means of God taking his own judgment upon himself as the judged judge. And that is who Christ is, the judged judge. And so he is the God who is both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And that brings us to our third and final point, the judgment upon us. If we place our faith in Christ as our Lord and Savior, we receive the verdict that Christ has won for us. God the Father looks down upon us as his beloved children, delighting over us as children with whom he is well pleased, and he promises us the certain hope of the resurrection. This is the ultimate and eternal verdict the perfectly just and merciful verdict of God. And it's upon all of those in Christ Jesus. However, despite this very verdict of God, we sadly find ourselves continually beholding to the passing, passing distorted, unfair, harsh, and ever-shifting verdict of those around us. And we see this in Peter's three denials of Christ. We read this of Peter's third denial. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, 
Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Peter says that he does not know Jesus and he invokes a curse upon himself. And in this statement, we find a deep irony that flows from disregarding the judgment of God, the verdict of God, and replacing it with the judgment and the verdict of the crowd. If it's true that Peter does not know Jesus, then there is already a great curse upon Peter, the curse of God's judgment. If Christ is God, then to not know him, as Peter says, to not put your faith in him, to not trust in his saving work, then that is to bear the curse of God's perfect justice upon yourself. As Jesus tells us in John 3, whoever believes in the Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. But if we place our faith in Christ, if Christ mercifully gives us his perfect righteousness, and if he mercifully takes our judgment, then we are not condemned. In that, in that case, Christ takes our curse upon himself. In this sense, we ultimately have two choices. Like Peter, we can deny that we know Jesus and we can take the curse upon ourselves. Or we can know Jesus. We can place our faith in him. We can proclaim him. And we can let him take our curse upon himself. In fact, in light of this truth, we see that everything is actually reversed. We think that Christ is the one on trial, but actually it's all of us that are on trial. Uh, it's almost like the dynamic we see with a, with a creature in the ocean called the, the anglerfish. I don't, I don't know if you've seen these fish, but they're, they're terrifying. If, you've probably seen a picture. If not, you should Google it. Don't do it right now, but maybe when you, when you get home today. But... Um, they live deep in the sea, and, and they have these long, sharp, puncturing teeth. And they also have a, a special fin that protrudes from, it, from its head with a, with a ball-like thing at the end. It's got bacteria that produces light. Does, does, have you seen this? Good. I, was, I wasn't sure. Um, we have kids who watch a lot of nature shows, so sometimes my, uh, I, my, I'm not sure what people have seen. But... Smaller creatures, you know, they'll, they'll swim towards the light and, and they think that they're getting an, an easy meal. But then, all of a sudden, they find themselves gobbled up. Gobbled up by the fish. And, and suddenly, these small creatures who thought they were the predator quite suddenly find out that they are actually the, the prey. And that, that, that's a little like the dynamic we see here in this passage. We think that Christ is on trial, but quite suddenly we see a reversal and realize that we are the ones on the witness stand. And I'm not saying that we should put, you know, Christians should put bumper stickers of anglerfish on their, on their car. That would be, would be a little bit jarring. But again, what I'm saying here is that we see a similar dynamic. We see that switch. Everything is reversed we see that the religious leaders and we ourselves, we receive the very verdict that they think that they are placing upon Christ. Condemnation. 
And this is an offense, right? It requires deep humility to see and to recognize and to come to terms with this reality. But the gospel is not only an offense, it's also the ultimate display of God's love for us. It's not just perfect justice, but it's also perfect mercy. It tells us we're so lost that only the death of the Son of God could save us, but we find that Christ willingly, lovingly, tenderly has given up his life for us. We're deeply lost, but we're also deeply, deeply loved. And this is the wonder of the gospel. Only if Christ is God, only if this one who is on trial being condemned on the stand, only if he is God, do you have a God who loves you this much? And unlike Peter, this means that we need not fear the judgment of the crowd. Why? Because in Christ, we have the great love and delight and approval of the Father. And yet, even Peter, it's interesting to see, as a great apostle, he will continue to wrestle with this beautiful truth. In the garden of the courtyard, this is not the last time we see Peter denying Christ. We read from Paul in his letter to the Galatians. This is from chapter 2. Paul writes, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Paul even goes on to write about Peter, that his behavior was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And what is Paul telling us? He's telling us that in fearing what others thought about his eating with Gentiles, about caring about the verdict of the crowd, Peter acted as one condemned. Why? Because Peter acted in a way that denied the truth of the gospel. His actions denied Christ. And just like Peter's denial in the garden... To deny Christ is to stand condemned. It is to call down the curse upon ourselves. And this, my friends, is a key challenge of the Christian life, to live as one who is not condemned, to live as one who has been judged wholly righteous by God because of the perfect righteousness of Christ given to us. So much of the Christian life is simply learning to more fully receive what has already been given to us freely and graciously by Christ Jesus. And I've heard this process helpfully compared to Jesus' healing of the lepers. And, and, and again, this is a kind of miracle that we've seen many times in the book of Matthew. Think about it. When Christ heals the lepers, they are immediately healed and cleansed. But how long would it take them to actually live as those who are healed and cleansed? Think about all the years they've spent having to avoid people, all the years they've spent isolating themselves, all the years they've, they've, they've been afraid to share themselves with others, all the years they've spent suffering the scorn and the cruelty of others, all the years they've spent wrongly telling themselves that they are worthless, beyond hope, unworthy of love, undeserving of affection or respect or attention. Think about that. Think about year after year after year after year of that. Yes, they are healed. Yes, they are clean. Yes, they are no longer lepers. But how long would it actually take them to live like this? It's probably going to take a long time. And 
maybe even a lifetime. And the same is true for us. If we are in Christ, then we have received the very righteousness of Christ. God has pronounced his ultimate and eternal verdict upon us. He tells us that we are his beloved children in whom he greatly delights. And even as God continues to purge and to sanctify and to heal the corruption of sin over the course of our lifetime, we right now have been fully and immediately cleansed and healed from the guilt and corruption of sin. And yet, here we are, still living as those condemned. Like healed lepers, we still live as those who take more seriously the harsh verdict of others rather than the gracious verdict of Christ. And so we hide, we don't let others in, we don't share our struggles or fears or challenges or worries or our sins. We're no longer condemned. And yet we hide all of these things, covering them up like the sores of a leper. We rest our hope in the passing verdict of humans more than in the eternal verdict of God. And so we are like healed lepers who still cower before and run from others. This can look many ways. We might work and work and work. We might seek the approval of others by our resumes or professional accomplishments. And and yes, faithfully stewarding our vocational responsibilities is a very, very good thing. But it can't justify you. It was never meant to. Not before God and neighbor. And so we work without rest. We work suffocated by stress. We work as those who must prove their very worth by their work. And so we're like healed lepers who scrub and scrub and scrub at sores that aren't actually there. If you feel compelled to overwork, then you are living as one condemned. Like Peter, you are denying Christ, calling the curse upon yourself, and you're attempting to change the verdict by your own efforts. And when we do this, we give far too much weight to the verdict of the crowds and not nearly enough weight to the verdict of God. And this happens, too, when we, like lepers, fear the scorn of others. Christian convictions will push you out of step with the culture at large, no matter what society that you are living in. And so ask yourself, do you hide your Christian convictions like a leper hides their sores? Do you fear the scorn of the crowd? Do you find yourself constantly trying to keep up with the crowd's opinions? And this is always going to be a moving target. Tim Keller points out that no matter how up-to-date you think you are, your grandkids will be so, so embarrassed of so much about what you believe. Or as the maxim goes, if you are married to the spirit of the age, you will be a widow in the next. To seek to please the crowd and its current consensus is to live as one condemned. And again, its judgment is always changing. No one can escape the Twitter mob for long. And so, do you want to be free of this? Do you want to live as one who can share yourself with others without fear of condemnation? Do you want to be free of all the ways that we desperately seek the approval of the crowd? It can be through work, or romance, or beauty, or connections, or status, or money, or a million other things. Essentially, do you want rest? Do you want to live as one who is no longer condemned? Then trust and rest and receive Christ.
Christ. Know that in Christ, when God looks upon you, he delights in you as a father well-pleased. And as the lepers Christ has healed, let us also learn to live into what Christ has made us. And how do we know that we are doing this? Well, let me close with two practical examples. Very often, when my children are misbehaving in public, which, which all kids do from, from time to time, I'm not trying to throw them under the bus. Um, I'm throwing myself under the bus, hopefully. Um, my response is more rooted in my embarrassment than a desire for them to grow and to mature. I tell my kids that I'm loving them, but I'm actually loving myself. I'm actually fearing the verdict of my fellow diners. I'm fearing the verdict of the crowd. And in my own experience, this absolutely kills patience and gentleness with my kids. But when I rest in the verdict of God, I am free to truly love my children. I'm more concerned that they learn to live as those in Christ rather than looking like a competent parent in the eyes of others. Because only if I rest in the verdict of Christ can my love for my children be an act of loving them, rather than an act of loving myself, an act of seeking a verdict I so desire from others. And here's one more example. I remember in the, the missions organization that my family used to serve with while we were in Vietnam, there, there was a man so much respect for him, and he would always be so fully engaged to anyone that he was talking to, no matter who it was. And I remember looking over at uh, some event, and he was talking to the president of the organization, and as you can imagine, he's, he's talking with full um, focus, commitment, engagement. But then I remember 15 minutes later looking over, and he was doing the exact same thing to a six-year-old child. He valued both of them exactly the same. He valued the verdict of God and not the passing verdict that any human can place upon him. Children can't get you a job or connections or a letter of recommendation, but they are dearly important to our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus who beckons the children to come to him. So ask yourself, do, do you vary, do you, do you change in the attention and focus and engagement you give to others based on the societal verdicts that they can place on you? And to the extent that you do, to the extent that all of us do, we are living as those who are condemned and not as those who have received the gracious verdict of Christ and so let us learn to live as the healed lepers that we are, receiving ever more fully the wonderful gift that Christ has already lavished upon his church and his perfect justice and his perfect mercy. Christ was condemned so that we can be embraced. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've given to us. Thank you, Lord, for the righteousness that you've given to us in Christ Jesus. It's there. It's a gift. Help us to receive it more fully in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.